It's with that question in our ears and on our hearts that we want to open God's Word this morning. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and be turning to Matthew chapter 26. We'll begin reading in verse 6 in a moment. What are you wasting for Jesus? It's great to be here at Fort Collins, to be at Overland and be with Pastor Zach, and I just want to thank you as a congregation for letting us borrow Zach for a week back in February. It was such a great time to have him uh, teach the pastors that we partner with, and he did an excellent job teaching them preaching from different genres of, uh, of, of literature in the Bible. But not only that, he was such a blessing to our family and encouragement. And so it's great to be here on your side of things and get to see your ministry and see uh, the people that you serve and, uh, and get to, to calcify that partnership that we're developing. And uh, hopefully you'll bring some of these people back with you sometime so that they can see us uh, firsthand and see some of these things on the video. It, is, um, it, was, it was back in June 2018, four years ago, that myself, my wife, and my five kids and our dog uh, moved to Zomba, Malawi, and there we partner with about 165 Baptist churches in southern Malawi, 18 Baptist churches just across the borders in Mozambique, and we do the three things you saw in that video. We plant new churches, we teach their leaders, and we serve with compassion the needs around us. And as you do ministry, whether it's the ministry that we do, or it's as a pastor, or working in the nursery, or as a greeter, or whatever it is that you do in ministry, God just has a way of blessing you as much, if not more, than you are blessing other people. Amen? And so, one of the things that comes to my mind as I think about that reality over the last four years is a young man named Patrick Matope. Patrick, he became a believer probably around 18 years old. Uh, another pastor that we partner with came to his village because he knew that Patrick's village didn't have a gospel preaching church there. And so this pastor preached the gospel. People were saved. They started a church there in Patrick's village. Patrick was saved and he was discipled by this older pastor until eventually Patrick was called to be the pastor of his church at about 20 years old. And that church of about 20 or 30 people, their building would fit on the platform with me here this morning. And, and Patrick began coming to some of those classes like the one that, that Zach taught in February. And as he came and learned more about the Bible, he was filled with an understanding of the urgency of the gospel, the necessity of taking the gospel to those who have never heard it. And so what Patrick did was he saved his own money and he bought a motorcycle. And he used his motorcycle to begin making these trips to the district north of him, which is Machinga District. Machinga District is primarily Muslim. And he went there and he began preaching the gospel even though he would face opposition, he would be chased out of villages by, by the leaders of the mosque in those villages. He would, they would warn people before he came, if this guy comes with a message on a motorcycle, don't listen to him, uh, block him out, turn him away. And yet, despite all of those difficulties, the last three years, he's planted three churches in Machinga District. 
and yet he's paid a personal price as well. You see, Patrick comes from a family where both of his grandfathers are witch doctors. And it was assumed from the time he was about 10 years old that he would take over the family business, and they began to initiate him into these demonic rituals as a young boy. But when he became a pastor, his, his grandfathers, at first they were okay with it, actually, because from their perspective, being a pastor was just another good way to make a living. So they were okay with it until about a year and a half ago when Patrick's mother became ill. They took her to the hospital, and they couldn't figure out what was wrong. They gave a treatment. It didn't work. They took her again. Another treatment didn't work again and again. They repeated this with no answers. Nothing that they tried was working so that the family finally came together and had a family meeting, and they decided that they were going to pool their money together to hire the most powerful witch doctor they knew of in southern Malawi. Patrick refused to make a contribution. He also refused even to participate in the demonic ceremonies that they would be taking part of on the family compound. And as a result, his own family chased him and his wife and his six-month-old daughter away from their home, away from their fields, away from their livelihood, away from everything they had ever known. When I finally got the chance to sit down with him, I asked him this question, how did you come to the point where you made the decision to leave everything, to lose everything in order to remain faithful to Jesus? And this is what Patrick said. He said, that was not a decision that I made in that moment. That was a decision that I had made long ago, and this was just the consequence of that decision. So when I think about Patrick, or I think about the other men and women that I could tell you about, that we get the privilege of serving and blessing in Malawi, I'm the one that's challenged. I'm the one that is challenged. What am I willing to give? What am I willing to waste in order to show the value of Jesus Christ? This morning, we want to look at a story in the Gospel of Matthew that shows us another example of someone who wasted everything they had to show who Jesus is and how wonderful He is. It's a story that maybe is familiar to you, but hopefully this morning you'll see it from a slightly different perspective. This morning we want to read from Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 to 13. I'm reading from the ESV this morning. The word of the Lord says, Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, 
wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would take your word and that you would apply it directly to each of us sitting here today. That no matter where we came from or, or what the condition of our life is in this moment, that you have something to say to us. You have a word to speak to us, a word that is a word of power that is a transformative word, that's the very word that created this universe. It is a word that can recreate our lives no matter what mess we've made of them. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that work through your word and by the power of your spirit in this moment. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. The Gospel of Matthew is a gospel of mission. And of course, if you think about mission and you think about Matthew, probably the first thing that comes to your mind is the Great Commission, right? Matthew chapter 28. I know I memorized those verses from the time I was four or five years old growing up in my home church in Kentucky. We were taught that Jesus told us He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching. And He said, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But if you think that mission just pops up out of nowhere in the last three verses of Matthew, you haven't been reading Matthew very carefully. Because mission is all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. It's all the way back in chapter 1 where we get the family tree of Jesus, which is not just a list of Israelite men running from Abraham to David to Jesus, but includes what? Includes four women, four Gentile women giving us that first hint that the Savior who is about to be born is not just a Savior for Israel, but will be a Savior for the entire world. We see it in chapter 2, where instead of the priests and the scribes coming and worshiping Jesus, it is who? It is magi, it is these wise men, these stargazers, all the way from the Persian Empire who have traveled, these Gentiles who come into the house and bow down in worship before the child Jesus. We see it in chapter 3 where John the Baptist says to the scribes and the Pharisees that if God wants to, he is even able to make children for Abraham out of the stones, which is a hint that God is about to do something that will seem even more miraculous to the Jewish mind. He's going to make children for Abraham out of the pagan Gentiles. We could go chapter by chapter. We could dwell this morning on the promise in Matthew 24, 14. Not the command, but the promise that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed. It will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. But of all the mentions of mission in Matthew, the one that I find most curious, most intriguing is this one. Here in chapter 26, verse 13, where Jesus says that wherever the gospel is proclaimed in all the world, what this woman has done will be told in memory of her. 
Isn't that strange? Everything that people did for Jesus in his earthly life, in his ministry, all the acts of love and devotion and thanksgiving, all the things that people did, what is it about what this woman did that gets this special commendation from Jesus? This this commendation that connects what she has done with the mission Jesus is about to give the disciples in chapter 28. What is that connection between the mission and what she's done? That's the question. Here we are in Bethany. You know Bethany, this village, two miles east of Jerusalem, the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the place where Jesus would often stay when he was visiting Jerusalem. And here he is in Bethany, this time in the home of Simon the leper. We know nothing else about Simon the leper. This is all the Bible tells us, that he has a home in Bethany and that Jesus is there. Maybe Jesus had healed him of his leprosy, and that's why Jesus is there. This is some sort of feast, thanking Jesus for what he's done. We don't know. This is all it tells us. But as Jesus is there, in the home of Simon the leper, in walks a woman. And in her hand is an alabaster flask alabaster is this white stone. It looks like marble, but it is much softer than marble. They mined it in Egypt, and because it was soft, they could chisel it easily into a beautiful container like the one that this woman is holding, a beautiful container that would be worthy to hold something that is very precious or very expensive. And inside this alabaster flask, Matthew says, is a very expensive ointment. Mark gives us more information in his telling of this story. Mark tells us that the ointment is made out of pure nard. Anybody wearing nard this morning? Nobody? Zach, you wearing any nard? Yeah, I've been thinking about it. <laughs> I didn't know what nard was, okay? So I had to get my Bible dictionary, I had to open it to N, I had to look up nard and find out what is nard. And nard, it happens to be a, it made from the root of a flower that grows in the Himalayan mountains of Nepal. So here we are, two miles east of Jerusalem, a woman walks in, in her hands is a jar made from a stone that's mined in Egypt. Inside the the jar or the flask is an ointment that has come either across the deserts of Afghanistan, Iran, and Iraq to Israel or through the Indian Ocean by ship. But either way, it's come a long distance. You guys know this because of gas prices, right? The farther something has to travel, the more expensive it gets, amen? And so this is something that's very precious. This is not some some gas station cologne, okay? This is not something you buy from Macy's even. This is something very valuable. In fact, Mark tells us it is worth 300 denarii, one denarius was what the common laborer would make on one day's labor on the farm or the construction site. So 300 is the equivalent of a year's salary for the average Joe. 
and in her hands she has something that is incredibly valuable. Why does she even have this? Is she a wealthy woman? She's got like 100 or 150 of these back home, and so she's going to spare one for Jesus? Probably not. You have to understand that in the biblical times, banks were not FDIC insured. So they weren't really a safe place to put your money. And so what people would do is they would save up money and they would invest it into a small valuable item like this, an item that they could keep hidden, they could keep safe, and yet this item, unlike if they just buried the cash, this item would resist inflation so that when the time came they needed the money, they could go sell it in the marketplace and it would have maintained its value even as the cash would have lost its value. And so what is this? This is probably this woman's emergency fund. This is her security. This is her peace of mind. This is what she thinks about when she wakes up in the middle of the night and she begins to worry about the disease or the disaster that might be on the horizon and she goes back to sleep thinking, it's okay, I have it taken care of. And she walks in with it in her hands and she pours it on the head of Jesus. In fact, Mark tells us she has to break the alabaster flask. It is a one-time use only deal and she pours it on Jesus. Why does she do that? This is her profession of faith. She anoints Jesus with this ointment as a way of saying, I believe that Jesus is the anointed one. In Hebrew, the Messiah. In Greek, the Christ. I believe that this is the one that we've been told to wait for. This is the one that we have been told is coming. From the time she was a little girl sitting in synagogue, hearing the law and the prophets read, hearing that one day a son of David is coming who will defeat Israel's enemies and bring peace to the world. She is saying, I have found him. He is right. Here, this is him. And she gives everything she has to show who Jesus is. And what do the disciples do? They criticize her. Why this waste? They call it a waste. Isn't it strange that often when someone makes a great sacrifice for Jesus, it's the people in the church that are often more critical than the people in the world. Why this waste? Of course, they have a logical reason for that understanding, right? They say, we could have taken this, we could have sold it, then we would have had 300 denarii. Think of that kind of budget for our mercy ministry. Think of all the orphans we could have fed. Think of all the widows we could have housed. Think of all the poor we could have clothed. Think of all the good we could have done with that kind of budget. And it says Jesus aware of this. It's not really clear if this was his 
divine awareness of what they were saying, or if he overheard what they were saying, or he just knew these guys well enough at this point that he knew what they were probably talking about without even hearing it. But one way or another, he understands. And what, what he does is he corrects the disciples and he commends the woman. He says, why are you troubling this woman? Because what she has done, it is a beautiful thing to me. They called it a waste. He calls it a beautiful thing. And then he gives this reasoning. He said, for the poor you have with you always. He's not saying we shouldn't care for the poor. He's not saying we shouldn't have mercy or or do good for the poor. But he's saying you have to keep things in perspective. And you have to understand that in this world of sin, in this world that is broken by sin, there will always be poverty. It will never be eradicated until Jesus returns. And so, Jesus says, you have to have your priorities in the right order. The poor you have with you always, but you don't have me with you always. He actually puts himself as more important than caring for the poor. And then he gives this piece of information. What she has done has been done to prepare me for my burial. That's new information. Of course, it makes sense because if you read the Gospel of Matthew, you see that Matthew has put this story right after two other short stories that tell us what is about to happen. First, in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, Jesus makes a prophecy. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified. Then in verses 3 and 5, we see the, the priest making a plan, making a plot to do exactly what Jesus just said they're going to do. They say, let's kill Jesus. We have to kill Jesus. There's just one little wrinkle that we have to iron out in our plan. Somehow, we've got to do it secretly. Otherwise, we're going to have a riot on our hands. Now, I don't know if this woman was there when Jesus made the prophecy, but you can imagine that this was something that was being talked about by those who were following Jesus, that it was being whispered about, did you hear what the rabbi said? Did you hear that he said he's going to be crucified? Just a few days from now, they're going to crucify him. What does that mean? We thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was the son of David. We thought all these things, and now he's saying he's going to be killed. And we, of course, read in the Gospels how the disciples, even the twelve themselves, don't understand how this is going to work together. But this woman, I think Jesus is saying she gets it. She understands. She's heard that Jesus is going to die. Instead of that killing her faith, instead of that causing her to doubt, she all the more says, I believe. Maybe she doesn't understand everything we understand about the death of Jesus today because we have books like Romans and Ephesians that tell us that Jesus' death is an atoning sacrifice for our sins, but it seems like she understands that if Jesus must die, then that must be God's plan. 
That must be the way that it's supposed to be. That must be the way through which the peace and the victory and the glory is going to come. And so she takes everything she has and she says, I believe that you are the Messiah. What's she doing? She's simply demonstrating her love for Jesus. And that's what wins this commendation. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, in all the world will be talking about what she did. She loved Jesus, and she loved Jesus with everything she had, and she loved Jesus as he had revealed himself to be. This morning, the sermon, the main point is just two words. So some of you have a hard time passing your classes in college. A lot of college students here this morning, you'll be able to pass this test. It's easy. At lunch, you can tell your friends what the sermon was about. Two words, love Jesus. That's it. Love Jesus. That's what this woman has done. Four years in Malawi, sometimes people will get an idea of how difficult our life can be. Of course, it's a beautiful place, beautiful people, wonderful thing to get to serve in Malawi, and yet at the same time, we spend six to eight hours every day without electricity. It's on a schedule because there's not enough supply. It's about like California. Um, not that bad, though. Um, I can make that joke in Colorado, can I? Yeah, okay. Um, we, we went six weeks once without running water, had to collect rainwater to do everything in, in our home. Uh, we, we get sick all the time, parasites, malaria, all kinds of problems. We had COVID uh, shutting the country down, went three years without being able to see my parents, and they didn't care about not seeing me. They were more worried about not seeing their grandkids, um, but... Sometimes when someone gets that idea of how difficult life can be, they'll ask this question, why do you stay or how do you stay? And when I first started getting that question, I would answer it with reference to the call of God on my life. God has called me to Malawi. God has called my wife to Malawi. But the longer that I stay, the more I begin to realize that that answer will never cut it. Because if I'm going to just stay out of duty, I'm not going to stay. That's not going to keep me there. I'm going to pack my bags and I'm going to be back to where life is easier, where life is more understandable, where life is... I'm not going to do it. This woman reminds me of why I stay why my family stays, because we love Jesus. That's why we stay. And that's the connection between the mission and what she has done. Because the mission is first and foremost to love Jesus. That's the mission. Yes, the mission is to proclaim the gospel. Yes, it is to plant churches. It is to teach leaders. It is to serve with compassion. It is all those things. But it is first and foremost to love Jesus. You don't preach the gospel because you're supposed to preach the gospel. You preach the gospel because you love Jesus. 
You don't plant churches just because someone told you somewhere that you're supposed to plant churches. There's all the difference in the world from planting churches out of duty and planting churches because you love Jesus. Everything we do, we do because we love Jesus. It's what motivates us. It's what pushes us to do what Jesus has commanded us to do. My wife makes these lists. They're called honeydew lists. Some of you who are married, maybe you have one of those at home. Um, if you're not married, one day when you get married, you'll get one. Um, it's a big day whenever you get your first honeydew list. And, and I try to put it off as much as possible, but eventually I've got to fix the leaky pipe or I've got to hang the picture on the wall. I've got to move a plant in the yard that, that looks beautiful here, is happy here, but it's going to be better over here, or at least I'm told it's going to be better over here. And so eventually I will, I will get my tools, and because I have five kids, I will call one of my kids to help me. And here's the secret. I don't need my kids' help. In fact, actually, I would probably get the project done a lot quicker and a lot easier if I just did it myself. But I call one of my kids. Why do I do that? Because when I was a kid, my father would call me to help him, and I spent time with my dad cutting trees or working on fence row or tinkering on trucks and tractors, doing things together with him. And it was in those times of shared work that our relationship grew to be what it is today so that now my dad is one of my best friends in the entire world. And you understand this because you have a good pastor. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful, right? You believe that? Now, if that is true, then it's also true that God does not need, and there's the important word, God does not need us to proclaim the gospel to all the world. He could have done it however He wanted to, right? If he wanted to put the gospel directly into every human mind in a moment, he could do it that way, right? But he didn't do it that way. Instead, he has given us a command. He has offered us an invitation to share in his work, to do with him what he is doing. Now, why has he done that? Not because it's the most efficient way, but because it is through sharing that work that we are going to experience and grow in our love for God and our love for Jesus Christ. That's the mission. The mission is first and foremost to love Jesus. And it is our love for Jesus that pushes us to do and that we experience in the doing of everything that Jesus commanded us. That's why Matthew puts this story here like he does. He understands that we will never obey the great commission of Matthew 28 until we have the great devotion of Matthew 26. But if we're going to love Jesus, that requires us to love Jesus as he's revealed himself to be. 
Not a Jesus that we could conjure up that would be pleasing to our American culture or a Jesus that I could, could create that would be pleasing to a Malawian culture, but a Jesus that, that goes against the grain of every human culture, a Jesus that goes against the grain of what human minds think is right, of what human minds think is good, of what human minds think the way things ought to be, a Jesus who came here and said, I'm coming to die. I'm leaving my glory that I shared with the Father and I am coming to be tempted and tried and walk in the dust of this world and experience everything that you experience with one exception, that it's without sin. And yet he goes to the cross and he dies. Not for his sin because he doesn't have any, but for our sin. And it's through that death that he is then resurrected and ascends into heaven. And as you're seated where you are, he is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. And at any moment, he will return to judge the living and the dead and bring about a new creation. Jesus is the Jesus who finds victory through suffering and defeat. He is a Jesus that teaches us that the only way to show love is through sacrifice. And if you're going to love a Jesus like that, it's going to require sacrifice. If you're going to love a crucified Christ, you're going to have to live a crucified life. This woman walks in and she destroys everything to show how great Jesus is. And I want you to notice something. Matthew doesn't even record her name. Sure, this is happening at the house of Simon the leper, but she's just a woman, the woman, this woman. I think Matthew does this to remind us that we don't love Jesus to get something. We love Jesus because we love Jesus. We love Jesus because He's worthy of love. We love Jesus because there came a point in our lives where even if we had heard the gospel preached a million times before, all of a sudden it was like we heard it for the first time because the Holy Spirit came into our hearts and opened our eyes and it was like we were seeing Him for the first time and we just cried out, take it, take it all if I can just have Him. And we can sit around in our small groups or our college class or whatever and we can have these debates. How much is a Christian supposed to give? In the Old Testament, they gave a tithe. They gave 10%, but we're under the New Covenant, so are we still obligated to give 10%? Or is that just the starting point at which we're going to give joyfully? What is it we're supposed to give? And that's not even the question. This reminds us that everything belongs to Him. You might give 10% on the app, but 100% belongs to Jesus. You might be here one day a week, but seven days a week belong to Him. You might give Him an hour in the morning in prayer and Bible reading, but 24 hours a day belong to Him because He is worthy of it. And it's not until we understand that 
that we will even begin to understand what it means to go, therefore, and make disciples of Jesus from all nations. You've got to understand Jesus before you understand what it means to make a disciple. Do you love Jesus? That's the point of the sermon. Do you love Jesus? And if you do, what are you willing to waste? What are you willing to throw away in order to demonstrate your love for him? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this church and for their partnership in the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would take these words today and that they would just be seed sown on good soil and that we would see in eternity what you have done with your word preached in the power of your spirit for the love of the world that needs to hear the gospel for the first time. Amen.